Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Portia Reddick-White. Portia is a seasoned strategist who has led policy and organizational efforts at major nonprofits like AARP and most recently with the NAACP. She has also served as a rank-and-file airline employee, a local and international union leader, and as the director of a major international union's legislative and political department. She was also, of course, a staffer. Portia served as senior advisor to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid and later joined the ranks of the 2016 Democratic National Convention. Today, Portia and her husband, Stan White, have a lobbying firm of their own called the Lawrence James Group Professionals. In December of 2022, Portia was named a top lobbyist by The Hill newspaper. I am so pleased to present my conversation with Portia to you today. We recorded this episode on Friday, March 3rd. Portia Reddick-White, welcome to Staffer. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. This is exciting. This is exciting for me. I'm so happy to have you here. Um, as you may know, I like to start these conversations with people at the beginning, uh, just by asking them about where they grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course, of course. Well, I grew up in a small town, at least then, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, where I was one of original seven. I have six sisters and one brother. Wow. What number are you? I am number seven. I oh, am wow. the last. Yeah. <laughs> number seven. In fact, wow. that's the way that my parents used to kind of refer to us. Number one, number two, number three, number four, <laughs> number five, number six, number seven. Lucky number seven. Can't Lucky go wrong. number seven. Right. And, you know, actually, then I ended up being kind of like number something different only because my mom's brother died well let me take that back my mom's brother's wife died my uncle's wife died right when they were stationed in japan with the navy um and as a result my parents took in those kids age 10 6 2 and 12 days old so i became a middle big sister too so i have a big family incredible you do yeah now um Tell me, how did you, you know, I, I know uh, where you went to college and I, I know you went to Oral Roberts University. So I want to ask you about that in a minute. But how did you, you know, come to meet some of the advocacy and politics that has been your life's work? Was that sort of in the air of, of your growing up or did you come to that later? Wow. So it was floating in the air very lightly. Really, um, my father was a minister. So speaking and being uh, out there in the open with folks and helping people really was in my blood to begin with. Uh, And my mother was in a management analyst position uh, with Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville. And so, frankly, she was the first black woman to hold this professional position there or any professional position there uh, at Redstone Arsenal. She was they actually featured her in Ebony way back when. So that probably tells you a little bit about how old I am. But really, I it was in the air, but I wasn't so much enthused by it until I worked for an airline and got involved with the union. So that's where my political bug bit me. Okay. Um, 
Okay, so I I want to go to that right now. I, I said I want to ask you about your university, which I, I will return to, but um, I know that you are, as I was reading your resume, that I thought your first professional uh, experience with, with the Transport Workers Union. Um, and it sounds what you've just teased for me is kind of how that came to be. So talk to me about your early experience with the airline and, and how that became work with the Transport Workers Union. So I uh, ended up applying um, for a position of a flight attendant. And it was actually something I never really wanted to do. I have a girlfriend who was insistent that I apply. She applied and she became a flight attendant. And my thing with her was, hey, I never, I didn't get a master's degree really to go back and become a flight attendant. But nevertheless, I still did it. And really what I wanted to be was a professional singer. Um, I sang my way through uh, school, high, uh, college, oh, uh, and I ended up getting a, um, a scholarship to do that, to get my master's degree. So that's how I did that. Wow. So I really wanted to sing, and I sang for my role as a flight attendant. I know people tell stories about Southwest all the time, how you have to do things. And yes, I was one of those who actually sang a song, and then they did hire me. Um <laughs> I know it's kind of funny, but it's funny. But once I got to Southwest, I decided, well, um, I want to do a little bit more. And I really thought it was in training. Um, but what happened to me was I got bit by that union bug. I ended up being an advocate for a friend who had gotten a little bit in trouble. Uh, and so I stood my ground for them. And then during the contract negotiations, there was this discussion on the contract and I was being pretty vocal saying things that I didn't think was fair. And lo and behold, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to law school. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my law degree, which I did. And then at the end of that, I reached out to uh, the union president uh, of the international. His name was Sonny Hall. And Sonny Hall, who was based out of New York and was the president at that time, I shared with him my desire to work for the union in any kind of capacity and that I was coming out of law school. And he said, yeah, we've got an office in D.C., so, uh, hey, why don't you, we'll try you out. We'll see, we'll see what it's like. See, you know, see what you're like, see if you like us and if we like you. And so I worked in the D.C. office for the legislative and political affairs team. And uh, the rest is history from there. That's how I got bit. So I, I know you started as a legislative representative there, as as one of the the TWU's uh, lobbyists. You I did. eventually ran that department, the Legislative and Political Affairs uh, Department. So for our listeners, can you describe what you you know what the TWU does and what your role there was? So the TWU is comprised of members who come from various sectors within transportation, as well as the university sector. Uh, and actually, they had some NASA folks there, too. Um, but airline, transit, and rail workers, specifically. And within that airline perspective, you know, we had members who were mechanics. We had members who were um, who would service the aircraft. And we had flight attendants. And of course, I was one of those flight attendants at Southwest Airlines. So when I came on with um, Transport Workers Union um, and had my 
experience and my background as a flight attendant, I actually ended up being very much involved with anything that was going on airline, of course, but with the flight attendants too. Um, there were a number of things that were uh, of interest, such as, I think back at that time, yes, flight attendants were not certified. So mechanics were certified, pilots were certified, but flight attendants were not certified. And I worked with a very small core of lobbyists uh, representing other airlines, American Airlines, um, United Airlines, and Southwest. The three of us got together and we lobbied on hill, on the hill to uh, bring forth certification for flight attendants. So in one of those uh, bills that actually was, was being formulated, we were able to move that forward. And uh, so from the flight attendant perspective, that was an interest and an issue. Uh, from transit and rail, we were talking about funding all the time as far as um, uh, funding for the uh, transportation bill when it came to uh, uh, transit workers. Uh, and for rail, of course, Amtrak was a big play back in there. But um, yeah, Transport Workers Union just represents a good conglomerate of transportation workers. Uh, I mentioned maybe a university worker here or there. Uh, as well as some NASA team members as well. At least that's what they did. So you were representing a really broad set of different types of workers. And as a result, you were engaging with Capitol Hill on a lot of different policy matters. You were at TWU for 13 years, which is a long time engaging, as, as we've talked about, on a lot of different issues, which gave you the opportunity to engage with a lot of different staffers. So after TWU, I know uh, you went to work for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, uh, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. But my question is, what did you learn about being a good staffer by engaging with staff? Meaning before you were one, what were the hallmarks of people who you really respected when you were working for TWU? The hallmark was, first of all, someone who respected the fact that I had an issue uh, and they were willing to listen and they gave me the time of day. And the other piece of that would be once I met with them, they would have done their homework uh, in reading up on the issue and making sure that um, they would be prepared to ask me questions on what I was presenting to them, why I wanted their support, why I wanted their members' support on an issue, uh, why I was bringing that issue to them, what it meant to me, uh, what it meant to our um, our members. Uh, and then the other key thing was making sure that I knew in advance uh, who was on the other side of the argument and what that argument was. And if I had an answer, to help supplement and help move forward what I was asking to be done. Yeah. So uh, after you leave TWU, I know you you had your own consultancy for uh, a year or so. How did you eventually make it to Majority Leader Reed's office? Oh, that was a that was an interesting period in my life. I actually got laid off by TWU. Oh. Uh, there were about fifteen of us. 
uh, that got laid off, it was right around the time when American Airlines, they were having uh, financial difficulty. Um, and we had a number of workers who were that we represented who were working at American. Not their flight attendants, but uh, their ground workers. And I believe at that same time, their mechanics. We, there was some mechanic contract turmoil going on as well. But if you remember, they actually uh, were filing bankruptcy. And um, the union wanted to do whatever they could do to salvage any jobs from American Airlines. And they made sure from a financial standpoint that they would be able to do that because going to court, bankruptcy court, costs a lot of money in New York. Um, so there were a number of us who got laid off for a term there, and I was one of those. My whole team actually got mm-hmm. laid off. Now, I, I go back and I look at that, and I'm thinking, I don't think they did a good job. That wasn't a smart decision. Frankly, to this day, they actually do have now another political legislative team. So they, they reinstituted it, re, reinstalled it, right? It, yep. You know, it did come back, but years later, it didn't happen right away. And by that time, yes, I was with... Uh, with uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid at the time, so. Well, he passed away a little over a year ago. In, yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, yes. It was the 28th uh, of December, 2021. Yes. Um, so he passed away a little over a year ago in December 2021. Can you tell us a bit about him, what you learned from him, and what you what you learned he needed and expected from his staff? He expected you to think on your feet, uh, make sure you knew the intricacies and the background of your issues. Uh, He expected the truth from you, and he was always open to receiving your opinion on things, uh, and he valued those opinions. He was a great boss probably the best boss I ever had. Uh, And um, just, he was always willing to listen to. And he would take time. He had a soft voice. If you all remember, he had a very soft voice. He did. Um, And he had a soft method about him. He was a nice, nice man. So he and I had in common the fact that um, we both worked our way through law school. He worked his way through law school being a Capitol Police officer. I worked my way through law school as a flight attendant, and he admired that. And uh, so we we got along quite nicely. Well, it's very admirable. Um, I worked my way through law school. I was on on the Hill, and I have such deep respect for anyone who does it because (laughs) there's, there's very little room for anything else in your life if you are working and going to law school. Yeah, so. you know, I we we don't speak too loudly of that because there are only certain number of hours that you can work. <laughs> so I had to always right. chisel at that and make sure I was within those hours as a flight attendant and didn't count the overnights, but I definitely counted the flights. Yeah, right. Um, well, so Harry Reid uh, and his office attracted a lot of talent. So I mean, you got to work with some people. 
that are really at the are and were at the top of their games. So as you observe, what separates, you know, like the elite staffer from somebody who's just, you know, doing their job well? It's the integrity that they would bring to the table. The staffers that I admired most in that office were those that brought on their integrity to issues and matters and the way that they they would just handle themselves in dealing with people uh, and their openness to listen and their guidance and the fact that they were so confident in who they were, they did not feel compelled to fight against competition or push back people. Instead, they were mentors and they would bring you in. Uh, so I, I saw both sides of that coin while I was on the Hill and the side that I thought would just was just fabulous was the side that folks like um, uh, General Robert Herbert um, actually, he, he actually was a staffer with um, Senator Reed that I worked with closely Major General Robert Herbert was um, a a leader in our transportation issues. So Bob left us too soon. Actually, he 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 died. He preceded uh, Senator Reed in October 2021. He left us, but he was fabulous for being inclusive, uh, collaborating, just leading and mentoring folks to understanding the dynamics of the Hill. So in the majority leader's office, folks really don't actually know this, I think. The fact that as a staffer, you know, he has his his uh, state team uh, in the Senate, but he also had his, his uh, advisory team for all the other issues or committees, the banking committee, uh, the um, transportation committee, yeah, all the, the health leadership committee, staff. all the leadership yeah. stuff, and labor committee. So we, our team, we were responsible for managing those particular uh, committees. So my committee was the labor committee. Okay. Uh, but I also, because I did labor, that meant anyone who had a heavy labor influence, I was also involved with that committee, such as the transportation committee. So when it came time to do those bills, transportation bills, I was right there by Bob's side. So that's how he and I became really close. Oh, that's neat. Um, you know, something I want to ask you about is uh, a friend of mine, uh, and, and perhaps yours as well, Paul Thornell, who is at Melman Consulting. Um, he wrote an op-ed recently in the Washington Post, and the title is Diversity Among Top Senate Staffers is Abysmal. It includes this paragraph. In this world's most deliberative body, quote unquote, there is only one black chief of staff, four black legislative directors, and one black communications director. On the Senate committees where legislation takes shape, there are zero black people in top committee staff director positions. When you were there, the, the numbers were not any better, perhaps worse. Um, and I want to ask you how... How did you make sure your voice was heard, you know, in an environment that wasn't necessarily set up to receive all voices in this, quote unquote, deliberative body? 
And what is your advice for other um, staffers of color uh, of any age in any in any body or in any political unit for making sure that the institutions and their bosses benefit from their perspective, even if it's not even when they're not set up uh, to do that well? Yeah, you know, it 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 was visible um, and Yes, there still are issues. Paul is directly on point. I think that the way that I was able to maneuver and to even move to the position that I had was through someone that I knew. So networking and making sure that you're speaking to people and open to meeting new people, new dynamics, new situations, is always for me and has always been key. Uh, actually, Daryl Thompson yeah. was the reason I feel as though Senator Reed even gave me a nod my way. Uh, as Daryl was leaving that position, he made some recommendations and I happened to be at least one of his recommendations. So they gave me an interview and I was able to move into that spot um, they wanted someone who knew labor, um, and I knew labor very well. Uh, they wanted someone who uh, could also manage some of the uh, light political involvement. Actually, I did some of the DNC work for the senator as well. Um, so I-, I was able to take what I knew as well as the you know, the diversity issue, because I worked with that diversity team that he created initially right. in the Senate. That's right. So I was able to work with them as well to help try to identify um, diverse candidates for specific jobs. So I think my advice right now is go to that, uh, go, you know, uh, in each chamber now, I think there's a, a diversity uh, lead uh, that we can go to as a diverse staff who wants to, you know, to be involved on the Hill or to gain a position on the Hill. So go to that, those offices and ask them, what are, what are members now seeking as far as, what do they look for? Go through some of the training that they offer um, and discussions that they will have with you and really then just try to network with other people on the Hill, uh, not just diverse people, but of course, across even across the aisles, just get to know people. Now I say that because there was another question I thought maybe you would ask that I hope you don't ask about who I was close to across the aisle, but <laughs> I, I, I think that just getting to a point where you are open to new um, ideas, new issues, new interest, that is key. And frankly, I think, I think we are, we sell ourselves short um, when we don't move forward with issues that are in areas that are normally not known for diverse people to dig into, such as the appropriations process, such as banking, such as you know, financial uh, 
well, actually, with financial services right now, we've got a great leader there in the, on, on one side of the aisle who's really helpful with bringing in diverse candidates. But we need to look at the opportunities that are out there and grow from that. But no matter what, it's always who you know that, has, that can help you. And I will say that I was able to stand on the shoulders of Daryl Thompson because he had that role and he was um, open enough to suggest that I interview for the position and I was able to gain that position. So my, my advice is do what you can to, to get to know people inside and outside. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. No, that's, that's great advice. Um, when you look back on your time uh, in the Senate, is there something that you worked on or a moment that you got to experience that you reflect on with, you know, particular pride? Actually, there is one moment. Senator Reed, he would gather us all in the office for our meetings uh, with, you know, with the staff. We'd come in, we'd, he'd be sitting down, and we'd kind of march ourselves all around the room, and we'd stand up, and uh, we'd go through the, the week, what was going to be up on the floor, uh, what was going on communications-wise, um, what was in the paper earlier that morning that probably struck him. Um, and there was, at one point, and it was during the, uh, the terms when we were looking into who would be running for what, right? And he said, hey, take a guess, you guys. Who's going to be, uh, who's going to run in 20, so it must have been 2016. Who's going to run in 2016? Right. Uh, and, and who's going to run in uh, 20? Um, what was the next one? 2020? Yeah, uh -huh. 2020. Yeah. And uh, so we were all taking guests. And at one point I did I did kind of thumb uh, who was then coming in as Senator uh, Kamala Harris as someone who I thought who would eventually be in one of those seats. So that was just a proud moment for me because I guessed right. But yeah, you sure did. Yeah. But but I think I also guessed the opposite too. I think I also guessed that. Uh, well, who knows? Maybe maybe Trump will win. I don't know. So uh, we had all kinds of discussions in that room, uh, and that was a time when um, that I found you know enjoyable as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny when when you get to have those types of conversations with fellow staffers. They are so memorable. They're so unique. And you don't always know that in the moment, right? Like week to week, you're just having these conversations. And only on reflection do you realize just how special that was to be yeah. able to have those types of conversations with those people. Yeah. And, and there's one thing that I don't know if many people give um, Senator Reid credit for. Now, I, I know I'm probably going to, some people won't like it. But because of the uh, advocate that I am with equity and justice and racism, making sure that we eradicate racism, one issue that I was involved with with him that he would love to have seen come to fruition, I don't remember when they did it, was the name change of that Washington football team. Mm. He would always call it the Washington football team. He would never use the other name. Uh, because that was something that he was strongly an advocate for. 
uh, and he would stand his ground and he was always looking for ways. Well, how can we, what can we do? Well, what's going on tax wise? What can, so he was always digging to make yeah. sure that we would, um, that we would eradicate the racism um, in this land as far as, you know, he, I know there were some snafus way back when, but he was a keen man who was very um, humbled and had a heart of gold. Yeah. You know, you mentioned his soft voice, which was a, a hallmark of his communication style. Yeah. But to just what you are saying, his views, when you know, strongly held, the man just had a spine of steel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. And and the stick to that he would, you know, make progress in small ways when he couldn't make progress in big ways. But he That's never right. gave up. He never gave up. So, yeah. Um. Let me, you mentioned your work for the Democratic Convention uh, in 2016. I, for this podcast, I got to interview Hildy Couric when she was uh, finance director uh, for the DNC. And she said she loved conventions. She loved going to them, organizing. You know, she said it was such a hard week every, you know, every four years, but the best week. I also know people who hate working <laughs> for conventions every single solitary minute of it tell me what was your experience wow so i was a volunteer for at least the convention out in denver so that was that was an interesting experience and i didn't like that but the convention in philadelphia i loved and i think i loved it because I was intricately involved in um, the labor agreement. Um, I was intric- intricately involved with, I mean, because you know, you know, Philadelphia is a big union city, right? Oh, so yeah. the yep. PLA, the project labor agreement, uh, arbitrations that occurred when they happened, because we did have a couple. So dealing with that, um, just helping to bring people into um, the uh, the convention setting. I was a, what was I, deputy director for public engagement. And I loved doing that job because that was part of just bringing all the interesting people in, whether it was the delegates or the members themselves or um, those who just wanted to witness. We didn't have too many seats for that. And getting the community involved. So it was fun to me. I, I enjoyed it. I would do it again if the right person would ask me. <laughs> yes. So. Well, I could see, you know, something you said about, you know, the integrity of being a staffer. I think in, in that type of role that you just described, being a liaison of the Democratic Party and the convention to a city uh, and its and its workforce hugely important, something that I think a lot of folks may not realize when a convention goes to a city, it's not just a matter of putting on a great event for the TV cameras or just a great event for all the thousands of people who attend. You are in a multi-year relationship with a city and everything that leads up to that week can succeed or fail based on the quality of the conversations and the agreements and the working relationships that you've built with the city. And it really does, like, the, the, the job of, of working all that out falls on people like you, Portia, in those roles. Um, and, that, and that 
absolutely contributes to the success or failure of a convention. Yeah, it's an ebb and flow. I mean, you get to know the people, you uh, bring them in uh, to the events that you are occurring. You have more than just that one event. We had events, oh my goodness, we had so many different events uh, around the city. We got to know all the folks within the city from all the various sectors, the business sector, the uh, commercial sector, the you name it. We we yeah. we were involved in uh, the the uh, the church setting, right? So we we did everything, and um, it was it was really interesting. It was at a time in my life, I think, though, that was difficult. I had a I had a fourth grader at the time, and that was hard because I had to live in Philadelphia for basically a year. And so, uh, but Philly and DC are close. And frankly, I had another little cheat sheet. My husband is a Philadelphian. His father at one time was managing director for Philadelphia. So I knew people as well. So that that made it a lot easier for me. Uh, And, uh, but it was a good, solid event. Now that week of the event, it was a hard, it was a hard week. I didn't really get to enjoy that week per se, but everything coming up to it, uh, meeting the the state folks as they were coming in, looking at the hotels where people would stay, getting agreements done. It was a lot of fun. I would, I'd loved it. Oh, that's cool. All right. Um, we uh, only have a few minutes left and I want to talk to you about um, your post-congressional staffer and post-political career because it is so impressive. You are now... Uh, uh, in the advocacy space and the organizations that you have worked with are and for are the very biggest and best known AARP, National Education Association, Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids. And today you are the vice president for policy and legislative affairs at the NAACP. Can you talk to us about what it is you're working on today? Yeah. So today I am really engaged with making sure it's kind of a natural that people who look like me, people who uh, are, who have been marginalized, uh, people of color are given the opportunities uh, to excel. They're not, discriminated against. They are not left to fend for their own, but to be a part of the democracy. So I'm fighting for democracy right now and making sure that there's a fairness for everyone who is here because we all belong. So that is what I'm doing. You know, and for all of our history, we have been a work in progress. Um, And slowly... Um, expanding the right to vote. And it seemed like it was all in one direction for the last 100 years uh, of uh, of things getting better, albeit way too slowly. But we're at a moment right now, I I don't know if you feel this way, it feels like there's been genuine backsliding. And I don't feel like we have the upper hand yet. Like I feel like there is still sand that is, you know, falling away under our feet. And we have to do everything possible to protect what exists today, you know, in the hopes that protect what exists and then expand it <laughs> so that we really get to a world in which one person equals one vote. And it's and 
and it's accessible and easy to cast that ballot for everyone and anyone. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think we are slipping backward, unfortunately. I think when certain people see that it makes it easier for people to participate for whatever reason, they don't like that. And so they try to encumber us with, you know, more hoops to jump through. Uh, mail ballot, mail ballot's so easy, but people don't like that. Um, you know, if we all truly would just lean on our own from a from a political standpoint, if we all would lean on our own morals and lean on our own issues as really being that issue that we really want to elevate, this shouldn't be a problem. People will vote their conscience one way or the other. They will bro vote for fairness. They will vote for what's right. And that's truly the democracy of letting people just vote their conscience. But um, no, I, I agree. Things are moving backward, um, not forward, because people are fearful. And I think what it is, is it's all about power, right? Nobody wants to relinquish any power because power equates to money. It's all about following the money. So um, those who have will continue to be represented. Those who do not have and who might be marginalized, otherwise so, will not be represented. And that's the way that a lot of people want to keep it. And that's not just unfortunate. Um, it, it's, it's an utter cry of just how can you how can you be for some other things that you're for when your morals are so low, you know, yeah. so low? You know, hearing you talk about the issue, it's, I can have honest disagreements with people on policy. We all can. Nobody agrees with any one of us 100% of the time. Right. But, but it cannot be that you can be open to achieving your policy goal by robbing someone else of their human right to participate as a full citizen <laughs> in our joint enterprise. It corrupts the entire system and is an affront to your fellow you know, human being <laughs> there. You, you've inspired me, so I, I, I need to like take a, a sidestep off of um, my soapbox. But you, as you talked about your upbringing, your father was a minister, you went to an evangelical uh, university. I I hear echoes of your faith in how you operate, how you operated as a staffer, how you've chosen your life's work, how you carry yourself and your conduct with other people in advance, uh, you know, to advance the the priorities of the organizations you're fighting for. So, could you just talk about that a little bit? How how your faith has informed your approach to your your life's work. Oh, of course. I I would love to share that with you. So, you know, you asked me a question about, you know, what I aspired in a staffer. But for me, because I live by the golden rule, I want to treat people the way that I want to be treated. I want to make sure that folks who... Um, are, are working with me, that I treat them with the respect. Um, 
Yeah, I would love to gain that respect back as well. But the truth is, I was just brought up in a home where you did right because you just do right, right? And it's very much like um, Mrs. Obama. So, you know, when, when they go low, we go high. Yeah. It's also to the phrase, you catch more flies with honey. Um, now, I got to say, I'm not perfect because there have been times I, I didn't want to catch flies with honey. There are yeah. times I wanted to go. In fact, my friend had to tell me last night, no, don't, don't remember when we go when we go high, when they go low, we go high. And I'm like, yeah, I hear that, but that's not right in this case. But my faith has taught me time and time again through just some of the even, um, you know, these small uh, things that happen in life of how nothing can separate you from true love if you have it, Right. So what I try to do is to continually be led by my faith. Um, sometimes I, I disagree with what I'm doing, but I know it's the right thing. And it, it hurts sometimes to do it. But I know that because of who I am, that's the way I'm supposed to be. And I don't want or to be a person who is... Um, who sidelines folks, who's not encompassing, who doesn't listen, who's all about herself. Instead, I want to be compassionate. I want to be thoughtful. I want to listen. I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, even though sometimes that's hard. Um, and all of that to me is just love. Yeah, I went to an evangelical school, told my mom I was going to leave within six months. I didn't because <laughs> it hit me. Mm, I want to get out of school in four years. But um, I, that was not my first choice of a college. Uh, but because I was number seven um, and I was the, all, have always been the child that uh, would listen and not be rebellious even though I wanted to be rebellious. Um, and my daughter's a bit like that too. She's just really quiet and she does what I want, even though sometimes I know she doesn't want to. But that's the way I was brought up, um, to give, to be a... Here's the phrase that Southwest Airlines taught me that I lead by. I want to be a servant leader. And so when you are a servant leader and you're leading by design, by you know, to others, and you're giving as you want others to respect to give to you, what else can you ask for, right? That's, to mm. me, that's the goal. And so as a staffer, you have to be loyal. Um, and that loyalty is translated, in my opinion, to killing yourself, denying yourself sometimes. It's not easy. But you also do that when you're a principal. You deny yourself. Mm -hmm. It's just the way of life of really helping to be a substantial part of society, to be a substantial giver within our democracy. There are things that we have to give up. Sometimes we don't want to give them up, but we all need to be led by that spirit of 
love. Uh, you have just given a credo, a, a staffer's credo. I mean, it really is beautiful what you've just summarized. And um, I hope in my best days I was able to embody some of those characteristics. And I hope that those who are engaged in staff work today, wherever they are, are doing their best to live by by those values as well. Um, I know I'm I'm nearly out of time. I have one question, uh, one more that I want to ask you. Um, I have this idea that I'd like to build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall. If I was able to do that, who would your nominee be for the Staffer Hall of Fame? General Robert T. Hubbard. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned him. Um, do me a favor and talk to me a little bit about why he was such a great colleague and mentor. He actually had the spirit of, he was just humble. He was so humble and he was he had a spirit of just giving. Um, and so he was a mentor to everybody in the office that would come his way. He didn't have to have an office in the... Um, in the Capitol. So when you work for the majority leader, many of the staffers have an office in the uh, in the Capitol. Well, when I first came, I did have an office in the Capitol. And then when we, when he, when uh, Senator Reed moved to be minority leader, we lost space. And so my office moved to um, this, the state office in, in, the, uh, in the Hart Building at that time. And Bob was always there. He never had gone to the other, to the, to the Capitol. He was just this humble spirit, hardworking, smart as a whip, and friendly, fun, fun loving. So that's the way I remember him. I love it. That's such a nice tribute and, and a, and a good set of qualities for, for people to emulate. Yeah. So, yeah. Portia, thank you. I, I really cannot thank you enough for for the time that you spent with me today and, and, and what you've given to our listeners and for your life in service, um, in, in both uh, public service and in and in the advocacy space. It is a it is a life of um, of work to embed to better the lives of other people. And sincerely, thank you. Well, thank you. I have enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, and if I could just help one person uh, as they are moving toward this career right now as a staffer, people who are contemplating being a staffer, those who have been staffers, just to let them know, console with them that, yeah, we've done that, but yet we continue because life is really about always staffing. Uh, well put. Thank you, Portia. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.